You might have heard the term POC before, but if you haven't, POC stands for Person of Color. Its popularity mostly comes from the United States, where it's used to differentiate minorities from white people. But in recent years, POC has become dated in many circles. The sentiment is that the term glosses over the main group of marginalized people in America, black people. And from that, the term BIPOC was born. BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Some think that these terms are helpful, and others feel that they're pointless and not direct enough. But these are mostly American debates. If you're in Sweden, there's really no difference between POC or BIPOC, because here we're all seen as other. Other as in different. Being seen as other is a unique space to live in. And it subconsciously reminds other non-white groups living in Sweden that you'll never fully be one of us. It wasn't always easy growing up living with that stamp. But over the years, that branding has become a sense of pride. It's a part of our culture. And here we are, two black men proudly representing the other in Sweden. Myself, Jason Diakite, and my fellow Swede in Harlem NY, Chef Marcus Samuelson. On this week's episode of This Moment, you're in for a real treat. We're going to talk to one of the most distinguished voices and minds in Sweden and the world, Mr. Jonas Hassan Kimiri. Jonas is a young, accomplished author, playwright, activist, hip-hop fan, father of two, and part of that other as well. So join us as we chat with him about his story creation process, his experiences being seen as different growing up, and much, much more. This one is going to be amazing, people, starting in three, two, one. We're so excited to to have you, Jonas. So, yeah, man, how you been? How are you holding up with all these, like, you know, this time, this moment that we're in? The year has been strange as for me as, as as for everyone, but I have no reason to complain. We have been healthy. I had this kind of weird year where we had, me and my family, uh, my wife and my two kids had kind of been in the middle of maybe moving to the States because I had received like a scholarship to do a research pro- project in New York. So we spent the spring kind of, you know, getting ready, packing our bags, unpacking our bags, packing our bags, unpacking our bags. And um, ultimately, you know, of course, like we right now we're back. We never left and we're, we're in Stockholm at the moment. You have unpacked your bags now. We finally unpacked the bags and we realized that there was no way for us to come this year, uh, hopefully oh, next man. year. Um, but, you know, like my, my, my everyday life has been, I'm, I'm in the luxury position of having, you know, the schools have been open in Sweden. Uh, I have dropped my kids off to school. I walk like 20 minutes to a small studio where I do my writing. Then I walk back. Um, there have been like some, you know, plays that I've written that have been postponed. There has been like a book tour in the U.S. that was canceled. But like all in all, we're just in this strange time. There are so many people who are much more affected. So I'm just like happy to be around and that we are healthy at the moment. Can I ask you, Jonas, just as uh you know, writing rap lyrics, I'm usually doing that in, in a setting with at least one or two other people, like in a studio setting. The writing process, of course, is much shorter than, than writing books or plays or or even poetry. But I imagine your writing process, obviously, is one of, uh, that's done in solitude. Well, it's a twofold question that I want to ask you. One, How do you structure your life so you give yourself that solitude where you actually have time to sit and go inward and write without being interrupted by your phone or by yourself, your own distractions of wanting to go out and drink coffee with your friends instead of sitting and writing? And the second part of the question being a world on lockdown. Has it really been very different? Because I'm thinking in a way that you spend all this time naturally in solitude because as a writer, that's what you have to do. Mm. Now, the thing is, I, when I was a younger writer, I think I, I thought I had the capacity to kind of work, travel, do lectures and write at the same time. For a few years, um, uh, I couldn't really create anything because I hadn't found a way to kind of, um, you know, like uh, 
find enough focus. So what I normally do now is like I, I say no to everything and I have like specific writing periods where it's just me going to my small studio. I have like a crappy internet there or may, basically like no internet. That's a key for me because I'm like, you know, it's so easy to just like start Googling cat videos. Right? Um, <laughs> My thing is, you know, speaking about rapping, it's like my kind of, um, you know, guilty pleasure is like um, <laughs> Googling rappers in the studio when they first hear the rhyme that we know that they will be spitting on, but that kind of thing. I can spend like hour, end, endless hours of watching that. But in a way, it's, it's the same thing that you're asking me about, because what I'm watching then on YouTube is when nothing becomes something. You know, you see Jay-Z in the studio, Nothing is... He's listening to Dirt Off Your Shoulders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, you, like you see the magic, like you see his face changing, and we see that something is about to appear. You know, he, the lyrics are, are not written, the song has not been created, but we see that moment of, you know, the, the, the kind of the switch. Um, and for me as a writer, I, I've, I've realized that I need quite a lot of time alone in solitude for that thing to happen. Um, and the main mystery for me is like, I don't, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know what creates when nothing becomes something. But I know that for me, isolation is one thing. Time is one thing. Um, what I do is my office is just like, if I can't write, I, you know, I have like a soft ball that I throw against the wall. I, but the b big thing is for me to go there and not have coffee with friends during those periods, yeah. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When did Jonas know, like, I'm going out in the world here and I'm going to become a writer, which I think it's magical with the two of you, right? You both come from immigrant background, living in Sweden, and so much about our upbringing is to become normal, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And although you realize every day you're told that you're not normal, you question, are you Swedish? Are you, how much Swedish are you? Mm -hmm. There is a local conversation in Sweden about who is Swedish, authorship of who has the authorship of that. And then on top of that, both of you go out on a limb here because writing there is, you know, like, you know what, I, I can do this, you know, and I can write, I can master this and I'm, I, I, I belong in this world. How, how was that for you? Mm. I think it started just by um, like a deep sense of meaninglessness, like a deep sense of that life. Not that I was especially sad as a kid, but just this feeling that whatever I did, I had a hard time understanding why it was worth something in the long run. That sounds super depressing, but I remember as a kid, you know, like eating an ice cream and you feel like, so this was the ice cream, but now it's gone. And, you know, like there's this feeling that everything was so... Um, that everything kind of withered away. And when I discovered books and writing, and especially reading first, I had this feeling, well, this will actually be around longer than we will. And that is not to say, like, I didn't get into writing. I started reading comics. And yeah, it was yeah. just like, it was not, you know, 
as a writer, you often want to say, well, you know, I started reading Proust when I was 12. And blah, 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 blah. But that was not, I, I read like Lucky Luke, but Lucky Luke was around, you know, and I shot the book and I went back and Lucky Luke was still there and he was still as amazing. And, you know, he was faster than his shadow, like all these. I was really fascinated by stories. I have like a diary entry from when I was 15, when I write about kind of, <laughs> I write like in Swedish, uh, one day it would be great to write a book about like a half North African kid who grew up, who would grow up. In, like I basically plotted out what, you know, eight years later would become my first novel. But I, the strongest feeling was that writing gave me a sense of kind of stability. So everything was kind of shaking a little bit. And in my family structure, there were also like important people who came and went from time to time. But the thing that was never, the thing that was always stable were kind of the words, the writing, the the act of, of writing things down gave some kind of sense of stability. Jonas, what you did to me was that, you know, I I became a rapper. I was just like, well, we all three of us were, I was just uh, enchanted by hip hop culture. But to me, I felt an automatic sense of belonging in hip hop. And hip hop was its own world, especially seen in a Swedish context in the late 80s and early 90s. Like basically on the surface, hip hop didn't exist. So it was this like secret. It was like being a Freemason or something because there were only, you know, I could tell from the 10 other people in the small town of Lund where I grew up, like uh, I could tell how they were dressed that they also were a part of this secret cult. So allowing myself as a 14, 15, 16 year old to enter that world was like, uh, I, ju I just did it. I didn't feel like there, there was no, there were no structures or pressures to stop me from being a rapper. I became a rapper when I started saying that I was a rapper, even before I actually had the ability and skills. But when you released your book, 2003, your de debut book, Et Agarot, the title that you were like, what, 26, 20, 25? 23, 24. 20, 24 years old. Yeah. And I was like, for me, it was like, wow, I didn't know that we could write books. And when I say we, is that to me, I didn't know who you were. I just saw your name and knew that he's one of us, right? Uh, and the title being Et Agarot, which was also the, the kind of the sub name of a very famous and very respected rapper called Ayu, who called himself Ayu Et Agarot. I was just like, it was like a code. I knew that you knew the same thing. It was like, I saw you wearing Timberland boots. I'm like, this is somebody who's like me and he has written a book and I didn't know we could or were allowed to write books. Like I, that we were allowed to rap was fine because we built that world on our own. But like books is their world, you know, like how was that born in you? Well, I think oftentimes we as creators, like the three of us, I think we can re relate to this feeling that we try to create what has kind of changed us the most. There are movies that I like, there are plays that I, you know, can kind of um, get into. But the, the one form that has kind of restructured my ways, way of thinking is books. That's the form that kind of, that I hold dearest to me. I write in other forms from time to time. I write like short political texts sometimes or used to, and I write plays as well. But the book is for me kind of precious. Um, I had a, I can really relate to that time when hip hop was like kind of like a, yeah, like a secret cult or something. So like me and my friend, we, there were no hip hop memorabilia to, you know, you couldn't find hip hop things in Stockholm at the time. So what we, you know, we were basically going to like Panduro Hobby, you know, and buying like, you know, textile paint and, you know, just like trying to draw the logos from the clothes that we saw, saw on your MTV wraps. Um, but I quickly really realized that, that, um, that hip hop, I couldn't, that, that was not a form where I felt the most free. I was a terrible rapper or I was trying to imitate. In the book world, I felt free. I felt that I could be a much cooler version than I actually was. You know, there was this, 
And I also think I, I grew up in a home where like there were a lot of books around, but I think also one of the main factors, there were more than one language spoken at home. My father and mother were both like playing around a lot with languages. And so that created also kind of, um, you know, a curiosity. So you say, this is what it's called in French. This is what it's called in Swedish. How do you say it in Arabic? And also being rem constantly reminded that the only language that I felt comfortable to write in was Swedish because it was my mother's tongue. Can I ask you um, about, um, you know, allyship, right? When I was coming up, it just happened that, you know, all my, where I was living, there wasn't a lot of immigrants or people born foreign um, background. But once I started to go to school in the city and play soccer in the city, so all my friends then became what we would refer to as blatte, and there was an allyship and it was a comfort zone in that space, which today would probably be a grimier word for BIPOC, what in America, we, you know, what in English you would say BIPOC, right? And this term BIPOC has obviously, you know, there's been allyship across different ethnicities forever. You know, you think about civil rights movements that has allyship across Jewish community in many, many, many communities and so on. All my friends were from immigrant background. And it was just natural. They were not necessarily black, but everyone was from Yugoslavia or North Africa or Iran or Spain or Italy. And that is not abnormal in our world, but for an outside world. What does BIPOC and allyship look like in Scandinavia and Sweden? I had the feeling that we were kind of growing up and we were uh, almost like, you know, we were facing like a very old school, homogenized national self-image. So there there was this kind of um, almost like there was no way for us to exist if we didn't find some kind of community, you know, to form against that, you know, the, the national self-image, which, which, of course, like we all know it, like the old, old school blonde idea of what a Swedish uh, person looks like. Um, but I must say my... my Growing up, my my experience was a little bit different. I, since my mother is Swedish, my father's from Tunisia. You know, I played basketball and I hung around with people with, with that had like uh, parents from all over the world. Um, I was always kind of questioning my my place there. Do you know what I mean? And I, when I grew up, the the, the saying was You know. It, are you basically it means like are you whole or are you half? And I, you know, I would of course be forced to say half because my parents were from different backgrounds, blah, blah, blah. But what it gave to me, I think, was this curiosity of how these structures work. Because I was oftentimes perceived as one of the light ones. You know, when we were kind of young and we were going around the city trying to get into bars, and there was all these kind of stress, it was kind of tricky to be um seen as a non-Swede and to get into even like hip-hop bars. You had, had to kind of, you know, talk to girls that you tried to find some girls you're going with. Like there was, and I, I um, what I'm saying is that oftentimes my experience, of course, like everyone who grows in Sweden, we we have experience of, of like racism. and But the interesting thing was also I, I quickly became aware of the important role that language played in the kind of, inclusion exclusion process do you know what i mean i could basically see that some of my friends who didn't have swedish as a mother tongue had a harder time getting the golden ticket of inclusion so i think that also made me really curious about language like what is it what is it you know in this mad the, the tongue that i have the ability to speak properly there's nothing in me that should give me that privilege but apparently the moment if, you know, someone in a, a cop car stops or something, I knew that I had certain kind of words that I could kind of pull out, almost like a secret passport or a get, a, get out of jail free card. That, that I, know, I, I knew that there were certain things that I could do that some of my friends couldn't. So I think that that also came with a certain amount of shame. You know, like, why am I let in? And those friends are not, you know. Um, you're, you're learning that you, you learned from an early age that words also were connected to power, right? Because, because you can speak, you know, quote unquote, properly 
or proper Swedish, you know that the power dynamic between you and the nightclub guard is going to be different than between that same nightclub uh, uh, host, guard, whatever, and maybe one of your friends who doesn't have the words in the same way, yeah. or between the yeah. cop and yourself. I, I find this is such, we're in such a unique time now, guys, because of we are connected. For example, SARS in Nigeria would have been a, just a very local conversation, but because of IG and social media, it's not anymore. This perception that that's what Sweden is versus a much more diverse country, that conversation today is much more connected. But when we were coming up, it was kind of an isolated conversation. If you a local conversation, if you lived in Sweden, you knew diversity was through and through in society. But you also knew that there was a tipping point here. I mean, Jason, you and Slatan was really the first voices that changed. You know, I remember, for example, this is ten years ago that you wrote. Jason wrote an op-ed in a, in a Swedish paper. And for me, that was like bigger than the biggest hit you ever had. <laughs> but the fact that he wrote in a major ma- newspaper for me, that was like on a higher level because that opened doors up for other people, right? So this idea that Sweden is dealing with BIPOC, it's about owning the word, but it's the only term that I can say that I was always comfortable in that world. But just like you, Jonas, because of my name, Marcus Samuelson, and also being adopted, you can speak, it's code switching. So I also felt sometimes that I could pull out that card that I can navigate us as a black kid, I can navigate us out of here, right? And it gave me a weird level of comfort. Jason, your name, you coming up, there is no hiding. And you, like, how did you deal with that? Well, I, I, I think I had the same experiences you two as far as my name was definitely a when I was in school when I was 9 10 11 12 I was so ashamed over my name you know I I remember when I I I told my mom that I wanted to change my name to Anthony uh and you know my dad's born name is Robinson but when he moved to Nigeria when he was a kid his his mother didn't want uh, any of her four children to keep their slave names, so they were given the name Diakite by uh, a, a local Malian man in Harlem, Papa Konate, who gave them that name. Like, and and then since then we've been Diakite. But for me, it was such an issue in school being, you know, like the teachers couldn't even pronounce my first name, you know, and and I would always stand up or raise my hand before they had to get to struggling with the trying to pronounce the, the, my last name. So many times I could avoid it. But other than that, and when I grew older, I, I think I, I had, or I definitely had the same experience that I could, uh, I knew how to speak properly. And, and, and I was also small. I've been having to rely on two things, and that's basically uh, my words and my speed. But I was small, but I had a big mouth. So I'd get into I'd, I'd get into fights, but I was I, I was really bad in fight situations. So I got really fast, like I could run. And also in sports, I was always like more. I was better at speed than like uh, the technical ability in like soccer, for example. Um, like I could run far and fast with the ball, but couldn't necessarily get it into the goal. Um, but my way of like learning how to speak better was my way of getting the ball into the goal. Can I ask you about navigating several spaces? You told Jason and myself a story once where your father could go into a store and be French and be connected uh, with the store owner in one way. And then on another way, he would be North African or from perceived as Middle Eastern could you talk us to us about that? So my father was, um, he was a teacher of um, French and Arabic. He could speak Swedish both with an Arabic accent and a French accent. So basically that enabled him to kind of show me as a kid um, that languages have different, in a situation, French has much more power than Arabic you know, based on, of course, like colonial past and historic atrocities, that's the case. If you go into a store speaking with a French accent, you're being perceived maybe as a tourist, maybe as a French 
at the same time, um, he enters the same story speaking Arabic that gives him another treatment kind of. Um, but I'm in this phase of like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that you described me as young. Like I have the, one of the rare jobs where you can be seen as young when you're turning 42. You know, that's like a strange thing of being a writer. But I, I'm also in this process right now where it's like kind of questioning the, the memories that I have of my childhood. Like that, that's a story that I've thought about quite a lot, you know. So, so that means that language, mean, you know, has a lot of power. Um, in the beginning of my writing career, I played around a lot with language, trying to show how much power language has. And right now I'm trying to, you know, as creatives, you must recognize that as well. You know, we have a certain way of working. And now I'm in this phase of kind of tossing it all up in the air and and doing things differently. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what that will You know, bring. what's fascinating to me when you explain that whole thing with France and sort of the Arab world, you know, I actually think the opposite. When you think about literature and you think of the Arab world, you take North Africa, you take um, that culture is so much older in terms of literature than France. But it's the same with in my world too. France has always been perceived as the country where all food, all great food come from. And now in my, you know, my last 10 years of cooking, you realize that Africa was there cooking for thousands and thousands of years. And we haven't really figured out. And it's, you know, it's when I wrote my book, The Rise, you know, you have to realize that the authorship of what comes out of Africa or the authorship that comes out of the Middle East, we always have to fight to get that into modern time, right? So, you know, you're up against modern history versus thousands of years history, right? How do you manage and how do you talk about your heritage? How does that manifest with your kids? How do you like actually, here's where we're from, here's where my grandparents are from, and here's, and how does that impact them as kids? Mm. Well, it's been more visual because both me and my wife, we have a lot of family all over the world. Um, so it's been um, quite, it became more visible now with the, yeah, with the whole recent COVID, uh, the impossibility of going to visit them, basically. Um, uh, it's tricky. I mean, the other day, my, my uh, eldest child asked me who's the most famous person in the world. And my, I was, you know, leaning towards Jesus or like, um, and he was just like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I, I want someone who's living now, you know. And then, you know, I, you know, I hated to say, you know, I, I didn't want to say that Trump was the most famous person, but then I couldn't really, f I was maybe Ronaldo, maybe, or like, could it be Trump? And, and I realized that I didn't want him I didn't want to say Trump because I think in some way Trump's ego would be really happy to hear that as well, that he would he is the most famous person in the world. But also I didn't want my child to realize that kind of that that strategy works in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Um, so um, I think for them up until now, they have not they are five and eight at the moment. And uh, um what, what they have been most curious about, that they realize that there are relatives that they can't talk to if they don't switch languages. So that has been kind of their way into it. But they have not. When I was a kid, I, I had the feeling that I thought about identity all the time. Like, um, and I don't, I don't see it in them in the same ways. Maybe they are blessed and healed. Amazing. But that, is, that, is that winning? I just think, because like, I always think about what does the end station look like? What does winning look like? Well, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe that could be uh -huh. it. Yeah. This high connectivity that they're growing up with maybe makes the experience less lonely than it was for us growing up, where we were these isolated uh, pockets and we weren't connected to so many other experiences that were going through the same thing that we were going through. If I would have... If, if I would have known that, you know, for example, you had the same, uh, uh, like you in Stockholm, Jonas, and you and Marcus had the same problem that I had in Malmo getting into nightclubs. I mean, maybe it would have just been more of a comfort to know that it's not just me and my friends. Like a lot of people like us actually exist here that are 
that have this this culture or this uh, this uh, this necessity to maneuver in this country in this way you know I'm learning that now as I grow up that with all along there were many of us and even though I could see other people that looked like me when I was a kid and when I was a teenager I it was just isn't that high connectivity of that like we are actually here now in living in Sweden today it feels like non-white Swedish people exist in this country. They write in newspapers. They, of course, participate in sports and culture, but they also have like regular jobs. And you can see black people wearing suits. You know, I remember coming to New York during, during the summer holidays, I'd be so impressed and inspired by seeing like black people in nice clothing and like suits and on the streets and black people that like my father didn't know, you know, because in Lund, we might meet a black person with a suit on, but it would be somebody he knew. And it, it was like one or two or but my, that there actually existed many of us. Or in know? my case, we had to stop uh, for all the black people we met in Gothenburg. And then you, when you're five and eight mm. and you just want to go and play with your friends yeah. and your mom, my mom stopped randomly. Oh, there's a black person there. We're going to stop and talk to him. And this <laughs> poor guy was like 24 from Gambia. And he's like, hi, ma'am. How are you? <laughs> Not sure why you stopping. <laughs> When I speak to my dad too about how his experiences were coming in the in the living here in the early seventies, it between the lines I can feel that it was even though they they had a group they had a clique, but they were still so few that they like knew the names of literally everyone, you know. Whereas now we exist in Sweden en masse, and we're if not always allowed to exist, we're like claiming our our place. And I'd say Jonas, you're your work and your art is a huge part of claiming and staking out a position in a world that has been considered fine culture, high culture, that has been sealed off for so long. I mean, it was sealed off to women and to certain classes of people. And then obviously after the existence of immigrants in this country, definitely to immigrants. Um, and so you've definitely been a part of changing that dynamic in this whole country. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Your new book, The Family Clause, that's, that came out in, uh, in the States, what, in August, right? Yeah. 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 And... Um, and in Swedish, it's called... Big New York Times write-up, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. And, and congratulations on being uh, uh, nominated for the National Book Award. Thank you so much. Yo, that is incredible, man. I am very you. proud of you, my friend. Thank you so much. Uh, but what I wanted to get to was the fact that... Well, first of all, I had just... My daughter had just been born, I think, the same year that the Swedish version of The Family Clause came out. And I was like, oh, Jonas's new book is about, you know, it says Papa. And I had just become a Papa myself. So I was like, I obviously have to read this. And I remember speaking to you and you were like, you know, I'll definitely like send you the book, but like, don't, don't like read it right now. Just like enjoy where you are. And I'm like, what does he mean? Like, I want to dive into this. There might be some info in here that can be like valuable here in my new, in this new landscape that's so vast and unknown to me. I think I was able to wait for a few months, but then finally I had to dive in and read it. And, and there's so many things about that book I want to talk to you about. Uh, but the one thing was that I really, as I read it, I really understood why you had told me to wait. Because there was also something that scared me so deeply. Like, first of all, it really made me think a lot about my own relationship with my father which is something I had already been pondering for a long time while writing my own book. But even more troubling than that was thinking about my own role as a father now as reading the book, but also, you know, for the remainder of my life when I'll be a father. There's a, there's a kind of a bleakness to the father character the man who is a father but also a son mm. right because all the characters mm. in the family mm. clause it's the it's the sister who is a mother and it's uh, the father who is a grandfather so the character that mm. i identify as you who has the two small kids and who's who's yeah. shopping and at the same time you get to hear his thoughts and there's just a it's just it was just so heavy reading it how much of the family clause is you and your family and how much of it is is fiction i mean it's it's all it's a novel it's all fiction but yeah 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 when i was uh, starting out as a writer i had this kind of um defense like speech almost like i was just like continuously reminding everyone who read me you know i i write fiction this is you know this is not an autobiography i I think that was also a way for me to kind of defend my freedom. You know, like coming into writing and reading, books was the place where I felt free and I had to continue feeling that way in order to continue writing. This is my fifth novel. And I, um, the more I write, the more I realize that, you know, things are, they have to ring true in order to come alive for me. That's how it is. That doesn't mean that everything in the book has happened the way it says in the book, but like I, I just have to really understand my characters in order to write them well, and in order to understand them fully, you know, I people that I love turn up in the book, things that have happened to me or people around me turn up in the book. It's about a family. It's the three main characters. The kind of the father, the son, and the sister. So it's a, an old father and his two kids who are now adult and they have kids of their own. And we follow these this family during 10 days. And the, kind of the main thing is that the old father comes back to Sweden and is in great need of help because he's like, he's losing his eyesight. He has diabetes. He's super depressed. He needs help from his now adult children. And the kids are just like not willing to help him. They basically say, especially the son says, actually, I've calculated this really well. You took care of me during like 17 years. Now I have taken care of you. I've been a good son during 10 or 17 years. Now we're even. 
kind of, I, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. So the moment when he tries to change the family dynamics, well, as we all know, things, a lot of crazy thing, things happen because like when you try to change a family, it's, it's everyone in that family has to change. Um, so that was kind of the starting of, I wanted to write about this family. And I, to be honest, like I recognize all these characters and I understand all of them. Um, I think the book started out with me writing the perspective of the sun saying, it's my turn to shine. Like now I'm going to write my perspective on this family. The weird thing about fiction is that the moment you start writing, you almost involuntarily start to understand other positions. And I started understanding the father much more than I wanted. You know, the father was just like, how should I put it? The, kind of the pain of writing him and being in his body, because the father is one of those characters. So in the beginning, he we realize that he knows everything and he thinks he's like smarter than 99.9% of everyone in the in the world. And he's just like very critical of everyone around him. And the first couple of pages writing him, you feel almost like powerful. But then after a while, you realize that to live in that kind of body, to live in that with that kind of certitude, you are also self-isolating yourself. And it's he is a very, very sad and lonely person. And the more I wrote him, I realized that actually, you know, the the reason why he is the way he is and the why the children, adult children are the way they are, it's also because they have this kind of family secret that no one wants to talk about. And that was kind of the main driving force behind the book, to write about the fact that the father has a daughter who has passed away. And I just knew that at some point that daughter would kind of enter the book. Um, so that was um, how the book came to be. And um, and oftentimes you, you know, this, uh, you know, as creators, the great thing when you create something is the moment when you realize that you can't really control what you're doing. So that was a moment when I wrote it, I just realized there were certain things that I wanted my characters to do that they kind of refused to do. And then I knew that the book was kind of taking off. The theme that struck me the, the deepest in while reading The Family Clause was the, the theme of flight. And I think it's just because it made me reflect on my, on my own uh, growing up here in Sweden and that so many to say even most of my black and brown friends were boys and girls who didn't have dads that had stayed. Like it was so normal that the dads had had left, that that was considered the norm. And it wasn't, I remember the day when I was 14 that my friend David said to me that, you know, well, Jason, you and, you and I are different. I mean, you have a dad. And I had never really, ref I mean, I had reflected on it as far as, because my dad used to always remind me, he, and he still does, that, you know, I stayed in Sweden because of you. I would never be here if it wasn't for, for you being here. And, and I don't think I was able to, in my teenage years, to really understand the gratitude uh, or that to be great, to really how grateful I should be about that. Yeah. When I was writing the book, there was this kind of curiosity where I, could, I started realizing that a lot of people around me, including myself, who had had, had experiences of parents who during certain periods, often like important periods when the, that the parents had left or not been around, when they themselves became parents, like when the kids became had parent, uh, kids of their own, they had this really strange idea of what it meant to be a good parent. Like they thought that in order to be a good parent, you had to be like the son in the book. He has this idea like, a good parent is someone who's like 100% present, who never like thinks about something else, who's always in the life, like um, focus on his or her kids. Um, and I think ultimately that idea becomes quite, you know, if you have one thought that you tell yourself that you're not supposed to be thinking. So the son in the book says to himself, like, I must not ever have the emotion that I want to flee. Like that's a forbidden emotion. I will never feel that. If you have that, it almost becomes like um, 
a thought loop where you like he's basically thinking, I can't think it, I can't think it, I can't think it to the point where he actually has to leave his kids anyway. Yeah, he has to do it. So I think that um, I was interested in kind of um, looking at the process of, of if you have an idea of how you're going to be as a parent, what happens when that collide with the reality of, you know, taking care of two crazy persons who are, you know, as kids are, really demanding. At time, you know, I love my kids, but there are moments when I just want to <laughs> sit at peace and read my book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let go of let go of my leg yeah. and just let me read. You know, and the, if I had the emotion that that would mean that I would be a terrible parent, uh, that would also ultimately mean that I, you know, I wouldn't allow that feeling in me. So I want to voice that that experience in the book and 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 also to. I guess to in a, in a way like teach myself that that emotion also has to exist. You know that it's okay to have that emotion as well. You know, as um, because of the moment when we kind of tell ourselves that certain emo emotions are kind of forbidden, they they control our lives. One of the things that I love about your writing is that you know, as a chef, I trained French food, but I loved street food. I loved all the food of the hawker stands in Singapore, the Turkish street food in Berlin or so on. And you, you really are challenged between, am I supposed to like this food? Can I write this food into my restaurant food? But this is a stage where you're supposed to do French food. You are completely unapologetic. And I just love that. Like, because you must have also, I mean, we all grew up with this is how we talk or this is the street food that I love and but that doesn't fit in the restaurant so what was that like and did an editor come to you and say hey Jonas you have to edit this out or how did you work on that find your voice for every project I've kind of been really um, focused on what I fear the most so with the first book that was really you know I grew up in a home where the kind of mantra was you have to speak Swedish better than every person always so that's like respect grammar grammar is like more important than god you know like so then i released a book that was like full of curse words and like really kind of you know I'm a young person who was actively trying to break down language that was my first book the second book i was really fearful of other things and that turned up in the book and with the family clause i think i i can't i think of the family clause a little bit coming full circle because I realized that what I was fearful of was to, I was fearful, I think I saw something in the earlier books that people were constantly leaving. Instead of like staying and being in a relationship with people, they took the easy way, like they, they, they left by, you know, imagining something or they used their fantasies to flee. And I was curious to write something about kind of the courage of not leaving. Like what happens if you actually stay? Because we all, we all have this idea that it takes courage to leave, to go out into the world, to kind of discover new things. But actually in a family structure, I don't know. Like when I was a kid, I used to think, of, there were a lot of kind of fathers who were not around when I grew up. And I, I used to think of those fathers as kind of in some sense, free, free, you know, they had left their families. They were, I don't know where they were, but they were somewhere out there. And now when I think about those dads, like there's, there's like nothing free about them, you know, that they're, they, they, um, they, the person who actually had the courage for the people who stayed like these, and that was, and that's also the, the, you know, the, the, uh, it's so unjust in a way because the person who leaves, takes up a lot of space, you know, cre creates a big shadow. Um, and the person who remains, oftentimes, as in the book, it's the mother who remains, is almost made invisible. Um, and that's a theme that I've been seeing throughout my work, that I often write about kind of people or friends or often fathers, you know, who have disappeared. And then what happens to the people who remain? Um, and in this last book, I, I, instead of kind of just like letting the characters leave, I wanted to, in my mind, I think of this book as almost like an homage to everyone who stays put, you know, who who doesn't leave. Yeah, who, who's just like 
realizing the, the, how much courage it takes to stay. Before we go, Jonas, I just wanted to ask you what, uh, what rapper or rappers are you listening to uh, currently? Like in 2020 and now, what's, uh, what's, what rap music is moving you right now? Um, well, earlier today, I listened to the, the Kendrick and Buster Rhymes song. That, I didn't know it had come out. Um, okay, I got to blast that. Yeah. I, well, I'm, a, I'm a kind of Frank Ocean and Kendrick have been like long associates of mine i've just been like I'm, I'm basically what what i'm looking for in a book is the same thing that i'm looking for in in music like if if you're telling me a story and you value my time and i think that's what both frank ocean and kendrick lamar managed managed to do they tell a story that they show that they value my time and they also kind of um they managed to go deep into the specifics to tell something that everyone can relate to um those are talk, kind of like my my go-to heroes at the moment in contemporary music um yeah it's just a privilege to hear you speak jonas and uh yeah no thank you it was so so loving it's almost like a therapy session <laughs> all right be well my friends cool all thank right. you take care, take care. Ciao. peace Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.